Good morning, everyone. Welcome. It's glad to see you all here. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians uh, chapter 2. It's going to be our passage for today. Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at the first three verses. Let me read them to you here. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind." I was, I was working on the, this passage this week, I came across two news stories that seem to capture sta- uh, very well for me the state of the world in which we live right now. The first was a publication of the annual church persecution watch list. This is a, a paper put out by an organization called Open Doors every year. They monitor and track persecution of Christians around the world. And they found that in the last year, one in seven Christians faced high levels of persecution for their faith. About 5,000 Christians that they are aware of and can count were killed for their faith last year. About 15,000 churches and Christian properties were attacked, mostly in countries like India, China, Nigeria, Ethiopia, and Nicaragua. Incidentally, my daughter just got back from a mission trip to Nicaragua. I didn't know this was quite so bad before she signed up for that trip, but thankfully she returned home without uh, incident. But that's not to say, for as bad as all that is, that's not to say that there is no evil in our own country. As the second news story reminded me, as you know, today is Sanctity of Human Life Sunday, and although we're deferring our sort of observation of that day to next weekend, uh, it's important that we recognize that day here. I was impressed and amazed with the hundreds of people who attended the um, uh, Right for Life, uh, March for Life in Washington, D.C. on Friday. My nephew was there walking with some friends of his from college in the snow and the cold. And he was inspired by the many, many people who were still out there. Because even though it's been about 18 months since Roe v. Wade was overturned, this is still a significant evil in our country. Close to a million lives lost, killed every single year. Struck down before they can even have a chance at life. So we have growing persecution globally, a seemingly endless cycle of death and destruction here at home. The world is a complete mess, right? And that's aside from all the normal violence and sickness and struggle we see on the news or experience in our own lives, the car accidents, the cancer, the broken marriages, and on and on. And if somehow you're shielded from all of that, then there's a daily battle that we all face ourselves with sin and temptation, Three weeks into January, today, three weeks into January, how many New Year's resolutions lie shipwrecked on the reef of our own sinful nature? Right? How quickly have tempers flared once again and pride continued to show its ugly face in our homes and marriages? It's not just you, it's me. Right? It's all of us. We're weak. We're broken. We need help. <laughs> not a band-aid kind of help. Not a flat tire kind of help. We need a complete overhaul. 
What is going on? Why are things the way that they are? And why do people do the things that they do? Why do I do the things that I do? Well, as we will see as we examine our text today, Paul is going to lay out three clear answers for us. And although it can sometimes seem complicated, when we're feeling buried by bad news or, or smothered by guilt and shame, the answers are actually quite simple. Why are, the way, why are things the way that they are? Why do people do the things that they do? Paul says it's, it's like this, this perfect storm, right? Made up of the world, the flesh, and the devil, like a, a spiritual tornado whirling all around us. Look, I know, it's sunny outside, right? And things are going well at home, and we have this enormous dessert table at the back of the room filled with delicious treats for us to enjoy after the service. And in this context, it's sometimes hard to believe. Like, are things really this bad? But the Bible is clear. This is the true spiritual environment that we are all born into. An almost inescapable tempest of evil, darkness, and oppression that Paul labels here as involving the world, the flesh, and the devil. And it's those three evils that we're going to explore today and three solutions as well that we get from our text. So first, we're going to look at the difficult and damaging impact that the world can have on our lives. And my encouragement to you this morning is this, steer clear and seek Christ. Look with me at your Bibles again at verses 1 and 2. Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world. Now I know, this is heavy material this morning. These are not light verses, but don't lose sight of the context, right? All of chapter 1, dedicated to listing all the spiritual blessings that are ours in Jesus Christ. And the rest of chapter 2, talking about God's incredible grace poured out for us so that we can be saved, right? But you cannot celebrate the good news until you have a true and deep understanding of the bad news. It would be like like watching the very end of the last movie uh, of the Lord of the Rings, uh, Lord of the Rings, Lord of the Rings trilogy. That's a whole different movie. The Lord of the Rings trilogy, and the hobbits are all like celebrating, and there's this grand reunion. And if that's the only scene you saw, you'd be like, "Great, I'm I'm happy for them, I think, but I have no idea what's going on." You have to understand just how dire and bleak and hopeless the situation was leading up to that moment to be able to give thanks and celebrate for being rescued out of it. And so that's where Paul starts here in verses 1 through 3 with the bad news. And he does not beat around the bush. He says, look, before Christ, he tells the Ephesians, before Christ, you were dead. Not literally, of course, but spiritually dead. Now, from their perspective at the time, I'm guessing many of them were probably just doing fine in life. Growing up, getting married, having kids, going to work, going to the temple, whatever it is. Just doing their thing. But being nice, it is not enough. And Paul is clear, doing their thing meant walking in their trespasses and sins. That's a, he's talking about an ongoing pattern of life, a way of life. 
Right? And Paul then explains what this looks like. He says, you were following the course of this world. Now, one of my favorite rides at the uh, water park is the Lazy River. Wouldn't you just die? To, I would give anything to go be in that place right now. But it's awesome. You just hop in that tube and you just, you don't do anything. You just like float down the river. You just go wherever it takes you, round and round. It's fantastic. But that's essentially what happens if you're not walking with Christ. According to this text, you are being pulled along by the course of this world. The world here standing as, a, as this big sort of catch-all phrase to describe everything and everyone opposed to God. It's people, sure, but it's, it's also everything that people come together to create in this world. So the world includes all the, the world's religions, all political systems, philosophies, methodologies, educational systems, cultural values, and practices that are opposed to God or apart from God. Right? It's all the isms that we study in our worldview classes, right? Atheism, humanism, monism, moralistic, therapeutic deism, materialism, postmodernism, naturalism, pantheism, polytheism, all the isms. Right? Following the course of this world means being driven along by the prevailing winds of our culture. Not just our culture, like this is an American problem. This is a global problem, whatever culture you happen to be living in. Letting the music, the TVs, the movies, the magazines, assuming anyone reads magazines anymore, but blogs, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, social media, whatever it is, all those cultural forces just driving you forward, leading you wherever they may. John Stott was writing about this passage in 1979. And I like the way he put this. He said the, 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 this phrase, the, the world expresses a whole social value system which is completely alien to God. He says that it, it permeates, it dominates non-Christian society, and it holds people in captivity. It is cultural bondage. And we were all the same until Jesus liberated us. So why is the world the way that it is? Because it is filled with people walking in opposition to God, building systems, nations, corporations, communities, even families that are alien to God and his kingdom. However nice and shiny and pretty looking they are on the outside. Right? This entire social value system is, is something that permeates John Stott says it. It permeates all of non-Christian society, soaking it through and through. It's like when you spill coffee and, and then you take a paper towel, like a clean, white, totally dry paper towel, and you lay it down on top and the coffee just soaks its way up into that paper towel, permeating every fiber. And there's no escaping it. There is no escaping it. Not under our own power, that is. But going back to that image of the lazy river, when God saves you, he pulled you out of that current, right? He set you free from that oppression. He cleansed you and made you new. He gave you a fresh start. He put your feet on solid ground 
right? You are no longer constrained, forced, obligated to live under that system. As a follower of Jesus, you are no longer bound by the world. So what does it sometimes feel? Like you're still facing an uphill battle? Because that lazy river of the world is so incredibly enticing that we voluntarily and willingly and sometimes eagerly just jump right back in the water. Right now, this, this doesn't impact your status, your position as, as chosen, adopted, redeemed, saved. But when you do that, it can stymie your spiritual growth. It can reduce your effectiveness. It can lead you astray from the truth and drown you in lies. Because those currents are deceptively strong. And if you hang out in those waters long enough, they will lead you astray. So the first solution is, is to steer clear, to, to identify and then guard yourself and your family from the impact and influence of those powerful cultural forces around you. But of course, in the end, there ultimately is no escaping from the world. Like, you can't get away from it. The, the Amish try to sequester themselves, but there's, there's no escaping it. It's unavoidable. There is no safe place where the world will not impact you. Retreat is not an option. And so I appreciate the insights here from a 19th century Scottish pastor, uh, Thomas Chalmers. And he said, the best way to overcome the world... The best way to overcome the world is not with morality. It's not with self-discipline. He said, Christians overcome the world by seeing the beauty and excellence of Christ. They overcome the world by seeing something more attractive than the world. Christ. Now, you may not be able to escape the world, but you can live differently within it. And the thing is, that does not come naturally. You won't drift towards that. You have to work to develop a taste for the beauty and the excellence of Christ, to pursue Jesus vigorously until all other desires pale in comparison. Because rules, regulations, resolutions, they are all ultimately powerless to do what only Jesus can accomplish in your life, a total transformation of your heart from the inside out. Only Jesus can help you stand firm against the tide of evil and depravity around us. So why is the world the way that it is, and why am I the way that I am? In part, because we are born into and continue to live in a world that is thoroughly and completely opposed to God. And the solution is both to steer clear as much as possible and also to seek Christ. Now, following the order that, that Paul gives us here in the text, the second answer that Paul gives this question of why things are so bad is the corrupting influence of Satan and his demons. And so my second encouragement to you today is to recognize and resist the spiritual forces of darkness. Recognize them and resist them. 
Look again at verse 2. Paul says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now, the powerful and dangerous impact of demonic forces is a real, significant, and ongoing problem in our world today. Not just among the sort of animistic tribes out in the islands of Borneo, right? Not just among the Hindu shrines in India, but even here in the seemingly totally boring and mundane suburbs of western Chicago, right? Demonic activity is not limited to certain countries or even certain time periods. Like, well, in Bible times they had this problem, but we don't have that problem now. That's false. And I confess, I struggle with this, right? I I read my Bible, I pray, I speak of the supernatural power of God, I I trust in his authority over all of creation, I believe in miracles. I lean on the power of the Holy Spirit, and yet when it comes to Satan, satanic activity, demonic activity, spiritual warfare, it's a struggle to believe that this is really happening now. Like, I believe it intellectually, I confess it, I I get it, but to grab a hold of that as being something present, and I've been wrestling with this as we've been going through Ephesians, we're only a chapter and three verses in, and it's already an unavoidable topic, and it's going to keep coming back up, and that makes sense because Ephesus was dominated by pagan practices, magic arts, occult activities, pagan worship. But it's just as unavoidable for us here, in Wheaton, West Chicago, Winfield, wherever you live. And we saw this right here in our, this building, in this room just a few weeks ago, right? I, I don't know everything that was going on in that young woman's life, but clearly demonic activity plays a significant role in her affliction, proving that Satan is a present reality, not just in the evil, impersonal systems of this world that we've already talked about, but in the day-to-day moments of our lives. It just happens to be the reality that most of us are shielded from most of the time, right? So I'm thankful for this powerful reminder we had interrupting our service a few weeks ago, a reminder that these aren't mere words on a page, Bible texts we talk and think about and then go about a business as if it's not really happening. Like, this is really real. Right? Satan may not be even a fraction, not even a fraction as powerful as Jesus Christ, but he is every bit as real as Jesus is. And Paul calls him here in the text, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Now, in the New Testament, Satan is often called the prince of demons and the ruler of this world. Not in an absolute sense, of course. Satan isn't in control of this world. God is in control of this world. God alone is sovereign over all of creation. But for this brief amount of time, until Jesus returns... Satan has been allowed to exert a limited amount of power. As Peter says, he prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone 
to, uh, to devour. This is his realm, right? And so I imagine like a, like a wildlife park, right, where lions, they can roam freely on acres and acres of land. Not, not a zoo, but like one of those big places. And they, the lions, they have the illusion of freedom, right? They, they consider themselves, I'm sure, to be absolute rulers, and they're at the top of the food chain for sure. And if you enter that enclosure, you do so at your own risk because you're facing certain death. <laughs> but is that lion really free? I mean, of course not, right? He's, he's, he's not in a little tiny cage in a zoo, but he's still bounded in on all sides. He lives and breathes and moves at the discretion of the owners and managers of the wildlife park who've tagged him and track him and know when and where and how to capture and control him, and if necessary, if there was a problem, to put him down. Now, of course, that's just an illustration, right? And unlike that lion, Satan can do nothing apart from God's allowing of it. That's what it means for God to be sovereign. In the spiritual realm, God has absolute control over Satan's every moment, movement, but this prince of the power of the air is, for the time being, allowed to exercise authority over fallen creation, wreaking havoc wherever he goes. So he takes all that is pure and noble and holy and beautiful and good, and he corrupts, he lies, he deceives, and he destroys, and he bites and tears and undermines and dirties everything he touches. And so is it any surprise then that we see so much evil, pain, and suffering in the world today? The Bible is clear that without the redemptive work of Christ in our lives, we live under the governing authority of Satan. Without Jesus, we are called sons of disobedience, subjects of Satan's kingdom, a kingdom thoroughly opposed to God. And I have to say again, I'm not just talking about like the obviously evil people, the criminals, the people in jails or whatever. Anyone not walking with Jesus walks according to the leading direction and guidance of Satan. That's not a popular opinion. That's not uh, an easy opinion to stomach, but it's what Paul explains for us here. The Bible is clear. There are two categories of people in this world only, lost and saved. So it really doesn't matter how nice or kind or sweet or generous or loving someone is. If they don't know Jesus, then they are counted among those who are living in opposition to God and under the authority of Satan. So again, going back to our question at the beginning of the sermon, why is the world the way that it is? Why am I the way that I am? In part because of Satan and his demons. Right? We can't say everything is their fault, but they play a significant role in the sin and the brokenness that we see all around us. And we ignore or downplay that reality at our peril. Because although you and I no longer follow the prince of the power of the air, he can still harass, hassle, and disturb us. 
Right? We can open ourselves up to his influence when we engage in sin, when we refuse to listen to the convicting voice of the Holy Spirit, when we harden our hearts to sin, when we jump uncritically and unthinkingly into the culture around us, passively absorbing the messages and voices of those who don't know God, who don't love God. But we're not left alone or helpless or hopeless in this battle. Right? Just, just turn back a few verses in the text. And look again at the prayer and the promise Paul outlines in verses 19 through 23. You and I do not need to live in fear of the prince of the power of the air. For God has him on a leash. His power, insofar as he has any power at all, it's contingent power. It's limited. It's constrained by the all-surpassing power of God. And we're going to get into more detail about how to fight back against Satan and his demons later in this book. But at the heart of the matter, it's pushing back against the lies the great deceivers keeps lobbing at us. You're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You're not kind enough. You're not generous enough. You'll never be enough. You're not forgivable enough. You're not Christian enough. You're not loved enough. Pushing back against those lies, clinging tightly to the truths of Scripture and claiming the promises of God for ourselves, speaking scriptural truths, like literally saying the words of Scripture out loud as a way to battle against this great enemy, trusting that he who is in you now as Christians, the power of the Holy Spirit himself, God himself, is greater than he who is in the world, the ruler of this world. Now, the third and final answer that Paul gives regarding the question as to why the world the way that it is, is the flesh. He says the problem, it, it's us, it's you and me, it's people, it's fallen humanity. The systems of the world play a role, sure. Satan plays a role, sure. But ultimately, the buck stops here in the human heart. We can't point the finger elsewhere or blame anyone else. The devil didn't make you do it. You made yourself do it. Right? Why? Well, let's be honest. When you sin, it's because deep down you wanted to sin. Right? Satan may have coaxed, cajoled, encouraged, poked, prodded, put, you know, nudged you in that direction, made it look amazing. But in the end... All he did was fan into flames those desires that were already alive and at work in your heart. And the solution to that problem is not more willpower, it's more spirit power. Right? It's not more grit and hustle, it's more gospel. So my third and final encouragement to you today is to live in light of your true identity as a child of God. Look at verse 3. Paul says, Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now before Jesus rescued the Ephesians from the dominion of darkness, they used to live according to their own sinful desires, not desire in the the personal 
sort of um, romantic or intimate sense. The word passion here is a little misleading, I think, because in English that means something more romantic in nature. But Paul is really talking about all the internal driving forces in your life, your, your thoughts, your feelings, your urges, your needs, your wants. And that word flesh, the desires of the flesh, the passions of the flesh, that's another tricky word to translate because we think sort of when we hear the word the passions of the flesh, we're thinking carnal desires, right? But the majority of the time in the New Testament, flesh is really just a shorthand way of referring to our sin nature. It's a theological term to describe everything that's broken within us. Everything has been broken since the fall. And as Paul explains, we didn't just possess these broken desires, like walk around carrying them, like, well, it's too bad you have these broken desires. We acted out on them also. He says, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We didn't just think wrong thoughts. We put those wrong thoughts into action. Again, before Christ, that is. But praise the Lord, because even before Jesus rescued us from such a predicament, God was still at work, right? Keeping most of us from the very worst inclinations of our hearts. So we have the law. We have peer pressure, social pressure, our consciences, right? Convicting us, common grace, all working to put the brakes on the intrusive thoughts and feelings that threaten to derail us at any moment, which is why your aunt, who's not a Christian, is nevertheless still a wonderful person to be around. Right? It's why your agnostic coworker is still fun and easy to hang out with. It's why kids growing up in Christian homes are generally speaking pretty good, even if they're not yet saved. That's God's grace at work in their lives, in your homes, in your families. And I'm so thankful to God that he keeps things from getting worse than they already are. But none of that makes the lost any less lost. Right? As Paul says, you were, I mean, before God saved you, you were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Why? Because none is righteous, no, not one, right? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, the wrath of God is an uncomfortable concept for us. It sounds so harsh and angry, but it really just describes his just punishment of sin. Evil in the world, in whatever form that it takes, it has to be eradicated. And it would be unloving if God simply looked the other way or, or downplayed it or minimized it or covered it over or pretended like it didn't happen or just kept lowering that bar lower and lower and lower until we could, low enough that we could just sort of stumble our way over it. No, God is holy and apart from Jesus, we are not not even close. So please, listen carefully. If you are not yet a Christian, then you are spiritually dead and lost in your sins. You are walking in the course of this world. You are under the dominion and authority of Satan. 
You are powerless before the, the sinful passions and desires and urges of your flesh and your mind and your heart. And so I urge you to repent, to turn away from that life, to put your trust in Jesus, to be rescued from this darkness. But here's the good news, the solution for your battle against the flesh. Look at your Bibles again. I love this. Paul says in verse 1, he says, you were dead, not you are dead. And here in verse 3, he says, you all once lived in the passions of your flesh, not we all continue to hopelessly live in the passions of our flesh. Look, if you are already a Christian, then that life is in the past. It is gone, completely eradicated. It is in the past, firmly, squarely, completely. You were dead once upon a time. You used to walk in the ways of this world. You once upon a time used to live under the power, powerless to the passions of the flesh. But as you can read for yourself in Ephesians 1, that is not true anymore. Right? You've been chosen, redeemed, blessed, forgiven, adopted, and sealed. You are a son or daughter or God. You are loved by your heavenly Father. And he has given you access to his all-surpassing power through the Holy Spirit to help you live for him from now on. Look, yes, you are still prone to wander Right as the song goes, still prone to leave the God that you love. But your status has changed. Right? Your primary identity is no longer sinner, but saint. Right? Satan wants to convince you, you are still dead in your sins. That you're still in that grave. That you will never get out. That there is no hope of parole. No hope of change. But that is a lie that you and I have to reject repeatedly, perhaps even every day, multiple times during the day when things get difficult. Right? Victory comes from living in light of your true identity as a child of God. We have this poster up on the wall and at home. Maybe some of you have the same poster or something similar. As a reminder of our true identity in Christ Look, do you sin? Yes, of course. You are not perfect. You are not perfect. You are not perfect. I'm not perfect. Right? You're going to keep sinning until you see Jesus face to face in your resurrection body. But living in light of your true identity means embracing the truth that you were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. That in love, you are predestined for adoption through Jesus Christ to the praise of his glorious grace. And you are God's glorious inheritance, his prized possession, treasured, cherished. That's your true identity. God doesn't just tolerate you. right? In Christ, he delights in you. Right? He is eager to see your progress and your growth. He's rooting for your success. And he has proven himself ready, willing, and able to repeatedly forgive you and cleanse you and make you new every single time you stumble back into sin. 
over and over and over again. When you repent and turn back to him for help, he is there to pick you up and keep you moving on that journey to glory. What a gift that is. So we don't need to live constrained by the power of the flesh, but we can live in light of our true identity as sons and daughters of God. So going all the way back to the beginning of this message, why the world can seem often to be a dark, bleak, hopeless place. There is so much pain and suffering and heartache and struggle. And we've seen how the world, the flesh, and the devil all come together to form this perfect storm of sin that perpetuates this mess down through generations. But God doesn't leave us helpless or hopeless. When the time was right, he sent his son to die for our sins so that we could be set free from bondage to these forces of evil and be made alive in Christ. And that same power continues to operate in each and every one of us today, which means there is no situation too bleak, no predicament too difficult, no problem too complicated that God cannot work to bring healing and help and hope through it all. These verses we looked at today describe those who don't know Christ. They describe who you were at one time before Christ, but not who you are now. As we will learn over the next couple of weeks, in Christ you are now a new creation. The old is gone, completely washed away. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, God calls us now to live in that newness of life for his glory and for our good. Would you pray with me? Lord, we give thanks and praise to you that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Lord, we praise you that the law of the spirit of life has set us free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. We stand in awe at what you have done. Lord, sending your own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemning sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirements of the Lord might be fulfilled in us. And Lord, we pray that you would help us this week to walk not according to the flesh, not according to the world, not according to the prince of the power of the air, but according to the power of the Holy Spirit at work within us. In Jesus' name, amen.